the world's favorite tax collector who became a follower of Jesus. Join me, Pastor Hook, as we go through 28 days of Matthew. We are back into the book of Matthew, and Matthew, uh, the last thing we saw was Matthew 5-7, through 7, was the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus had some incredibly good teachings, um, and uh, now he's going to shift He's going to shift gears and shifting gears now from Matthew chapter eight, Jesus basically is just demonstrating his power. All of Matthew eight is Jesus demonstrating his power. He's true God. He's true man. Um, and he starts doing things now uh, that are wonderful for a lot of people, scary for some people. And uh, but what he is basically doing in Matthew eight is demonstrating his power. And if you remember, Matthew is uh, Ma- Matthew. One of the big themes in Matthew is proving that Jesus is truly the promised Messiah from the Old Testament. So one of the ways that Matthew demonstrates that first five chapters five, six, and seven is the teachings of Jesus. But now he moves into just the absolute raw power of Jesus, and uh, it's very, very wonderful, very shocking, very exciting. You've heard these <clears throat> these things all before. So probably not uh, a surprise to you, uh, but it was a surprise to the people at the time of Jesus' time. They hadn't seen anybody with this kind of power. So uh, the first person that Jesus encounters or the first story that Jesus talks about is uh, in uh, chapter 8, verse 1, with the man with leprosy. So, uh, oh my goodness. So I have to, um, you'll have to excuse me for a second. Uh, I normally blow this up on my screen to a higher resolution so I can actually read it. There we go. All right. Here we go. Matthew chapter 8. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. So he'd been on the mountainside teaching Sermon on the Mount. Now these people, they want to hear more. They want to see more. So they follow him. And a man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately he was cleaned of his leprosy. And then Jesus said to him, see that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift of the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. So uh, this is the first miracle that we see in Matthew. Uh, it's different in different gospels, but in this one, it's healing this, lep- this man with leprosy. Um, not entirely sure what leprosy was uh, at the time of Jesus. They've gone back and they've looked um, at various illnesses that we have in society and tried to match it up with what it what the historical account was for leprosy. There's a lots of different things. Um, it could be any number of 30 or 40 illnesses or actually probably more likely is that it was any illness that was kind of in the, the skin or deformity uh, area. I mean, you still see some people today in some parts of the world that get some horrible skin deformities. They get big boils or they'll get growths that don't make sense uh, on their face or on their body. I mean, any of these things could have been considered leprosy. And when you had leprosy at that point and the priest saw that you had leprosy, then you had to basically self-quarantine yourself out of the leprosy um, and, uh, and you were considered to be unclean. These people, um, they had to have a scarf over their face or they had to have some other marking. Um, if they saw other people, they had to yell unclean, unclean. 
you know, people would avoid them. I mean, it was a horrible, it's, you know, we are social creatures. As this quarantine points out, we need to be in the presence of other people. And if we are not, unless you are just very, very quiet and shy and introverted and you love being quarantined from people, um, <clears throat> most of us, uh, most people need to have some connection with other people throughout the day. Actually, if you think of what it would be like if we didn't have reading materials or books or TV or or some of the ways to stay connected, telephone, just think of how horrible it would be if you were not connected to other people. Uh, we, it's hard for us to understand now because we're always connected, but back then, uh, this, this disease, leprosy, was horrible. Um, and so uh, it was, if you had leprosy at that time, it was, uh, it was a disease that really, not only was a physical disease, but it was an emotional, mental, social disease that was really horrible. Um, it's interesting, in the late 1800s, uh, uh, there was a, 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 you know, that was kind of the advent of learning about diseases and which, what diseases look like and what the molecules of the, you know, the, the patterns of the diseases look like. Uh, there was a guy named uh, Hansen, a German scientist, physicist, a chemist, um, and he came up with what he called this leprosy disease. It's called Hansen disease, but he gave it the name of leprosy. And so uh, there's a lot of big hubbub in the late 1800s, early 1900s that we know what leprosy is and we've diagnosed leprosy and we had the leprosy disease, Hansen's disease. Um, but we don't know. I mean, it, was, uh, it could have been any one of a number of diseases. The downside of that was that if you had uh, Hansen's disease, um, which was uh, basically what Hansen's disease is, is a neurological disease. And the neurologic, so basically what he determined that what one strand of leprosy from the Old Testament, what it could have been was this thing called, this neurological disease called Hansen's disease. And basically Hansen's disease goes in and starts destroying your nerve endings. It's like a neuropathy and you can get some skin conditions out of it. You can get all sorts of things. But one of the worst things, uh, your hands curl up, um, you know, your skin has some lesions and things like that. But one of the worst things that happens is you can no longer feel pain. And if you cannot feel pain, then if you stub your toe um, or if you grab something hot off of the stove and you don't know that you've done that, you can cause all sorts of serious damages to your, to your body. Um, imagine what it would, I mean, you think it'd be great if you stubbed your toe, you don't feel it, but the pain really is that we have in our system is really a good thing because it notifies us of what is going on in our body and allows us to take care of that particular part of the body so that it can heal and we can, we can dress the wound and all that sort of thing. But if you have Hansen's disease, you never know that you've been, uh, that you've been uh, hurt. And so uh, that was Hansen's disease. The second thing that happened after he diagnosed it is a lot of people with Hansen's disease now were called lepers. And they were started to sh be shunned by society and all these sort of things. It was a pretty nasty thing. Unfort I should say it was an unfortunate thing because uh, we really have no idea what leprosy was in the Old Testament. We have an idea there's 30 or 40 diseases that it could be or all of them. We just don't know. Um, but that's, uh, that's what would happen if a person had leprosy, then they would go uh, to the priest kind of, and they would have to, the priest would diagnose them, yeah, you have leprosy and uh, you need to, you need to isolate yourself from society. 
So when Jesus said, hey, you no longer have that leprosy, I have healed you from that. Uh, of course, then Jesus tells him to go and show himself to the priest, which he did. And he shows himself to the priest and then he was able to rejoin society. That must have been a phenomenally wonderful thing for him to be able to have relationships again, to see people again. To, to, I mean, it, it must have been an incredible thing for which I'm sure he was very, very grateful to Jesus for being able to do that. Um, let's see. Uh, yeah, so just, just so you know, um, diseases in the Old Testament, these things were horrible. We... Now, with our modern medicine, uh, we can do so much to treat people with diseases. If people are in pain, uh, we can alleviate the pain. I mean, even as late as the 1800s, uh, if a person needed to have a leg amputated, sometimes some of these things were not done under anesthesia. And if you can imagine uh, what it was like at the time of Jesus, if you had some disease, <clears throat> they didn't even know about amputation back then, right? I mean, or gangrene or something. I mean, some of these things just, they just consumed uh, your body. I mean, I just, I shudder to think about what it would have been like to die of one of these debilitating diseases for which now we have modern medicine for. But, but these people, they, they didn't have anything. And some of them came to the end of their life and were in incredible, incredible amount of pain. I am, um, I've, I have been because I'm a pastor. I have been uh, blessed. I call it a blessing to be at people, you know, in the last stages of life. And a lot of things, you know, that that people die from today, uh, we are able to treat. But when it gets to the very end and it, you get to the pain part, uh, you know, we inject them with these pain medications that are extremely powerful, um, that help people. Uh, you know, die in a very pain-free manner, but this was not the case at the time of Jesus. It was not the case at the time of Luther. I mean, it was not the case throughout most of the history of the human condition. The fact that you live now in 2020 um, and you can live a relatively pain-free life is one of the best blessings of, of the modern world because, uh, because it was, has not always been that way at all. I mean, people in some of these situations should be begging to die because the pain was so incredible. Um, <clears throat> so anyway, that's something to wake up every morning and thank God for, that you live in this modern world. Um, anyway, so I had to be so morbid. But Jesus is risen, right? Even death uh, has no sting for us because we are Jesus. Uh, we are followers of Jesus, and he has bought and purchased us, us with his death. And we see by his death and resurrection that death is not the end. And so that when we do go quietly into the night with our morphine or whatever it is, we know that we will wake up and be in the presence of Jesus and with the community of all believers, it's going to be wonderful. All right, so uh, we're going on to the, the Matthew 8, uh, verse 5. When Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? This is what the centurion replied. Lord, I do not deserve to, I do not, this is centurion. I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I am self of a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go and he goes and that one come and he comes. I say to my servant, do this and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. 
I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their place at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then Jesus said this to the centurion, Go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. So um, if you are, uh, now centurions, so you had um, in the Roman army, okay, at that point, it was just the army at that point, you had an incredibly well, uh, well-structured Roman army. And the Roman army was structured uh, in such a way that they could go places and march and keep the peace. They were basically the people that kept the Pax Romana, the, the Romana, the peace of Rome. Uh, they built roads. They kept the peace. I mean, they, they did all sorts of amazing things at that point. It was very, very well organized, very well structured. Um, so you had people in the army. They would join into units uh, and then... Um, there could be eight to ten people in a unit, and then the units uh, join together, and you might uh, have a, and those were called a century, and a century was maybe eight to ten uh, units, uh, and then you had one person in charge of that century. That was called a centurion. So a centurion typically was in charge of maybe a hundred men, uh, and it was uh, these men uh, had to follow the centurion, whatever the, if the centurion said, I want you to go over and do that, you did that. So these people were very, very powerful. In my mind, I don't know if you've ever met, you know, we live in a, in a Air Force community right now, so you meet these people, but um, I, would, I would say a centurion is probably on the equivalent rank of a lieutenant colonel, okay? <laughs> and lieutenant colonels may be upset with me by this, I don't know, but, um, but you know, it's a ranking where there are people underneath you that uh, do what they what you tell them to do and they do it without question because it's the army right or the air force or the navy um, and uh, these people have an incredible amount of power because you cannot have these military powers without these command and control structures that demand total allegiance to what the controlling person says right i mean th this is built into the system and it's built into the system so that the system works because when you're fighting a war or, you know, you're trying to keep the peace uh, at the time of Jesus, these people need to be followed. I mean, and any delay in following their command could be the death of, the, of these people. And if you're in the military, you understand this. I've, I've never served in the military. Um, when, I, when I came of age to serve in the military, there was just not a lot of people serving in the military, so I didn't go into the military. Um, but I, I mean, I, I'm fascinated by the military. I love people in the military. Um, I have a story that I want to tell you. Uh, this is, uh, so I uh, went to college uh, back in the 80s, and one of the classes I took uh, was required for my degree. Maybe it was an option. Uh, it was called uh, construction contracting. And this, this basically was a class to learn about how to develop a contract, how to manage a contract, um, what to look forward, you know, what to look at when you're looking at a contract for insurance and all that sort of thing. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's something that once you get into the business world and you deal with a lot of contracts, you know, you're, there's other people that teach you things about contracts, like the hard knocks of life. But, but as a, you know, as a young college student, this was a great class to take. And, um, and the guy that taught it was a Lieutenant Colonel, L Lieutenant Colonel Badger. And uh, he was a civil engineer. 
and he taught this construction contracts class. And uh, he was talking about command and authority. I mean, a lot of these professors, they bring in personal stories to teach particular lessons. I don't remember what the lesson was that he was trying to teach, but I remember the story. Uh, he was working on an Air Force base, Lieutenant Colonel Badger. He was the guy in charge of all the facilities on the Air Force base. And uh, so basically, he's a civil engineer in charge of facilities. So if something broke down, he would send out crews to get it fixed. Uh, and he had some staff working for him, but sometimes he would contract out these things. I mean, he's basically just man a facilities manager uh, for the Air Force and one of the Air Force bases. <clears throat> Great guy. Honestly, one of the just greatest guys you know ever had a class with. Um, and uh, Colonel Badger told the story once about how the air conditioning uh, was to be replaced in, um, so when you have uh, Air Force Base, typically there's levels and ranks and stuff, but the top guy at the Air Force Base, I believe he's a general. I don't know how many stars he's got, two star, three star, anyway. I don't know who the, the general is at, at Davis Monson, but I'm sure that there's one guy that's like the guy. Well, uh, there, have, there was one of these guys like at Davis Monson that, that was gonna have his air conditioning replaced. So the guy did everything he possibly could to let him know what was gonna happen, you know, uh, this is what's gonna happen. He laid out a schedule, we're gonna replace it on this day and everything, you know, laid out everything. They went into this, uh, this general's house, uh, they took off the old air conditioning unit and they put on the new air conditioning unit, they got it all ready to go and there was a part that didn't ship and they couldn't get a hold of. And um, so they couldn't turn on the air conditioning. And uh, so the guy went to <clears throat> the the colonel or no I, I don't know who you know the whoever's in charge right the, the two star two star or three star whatever and he went to his wife and said you're not going to have air conditioning on tonight sorry um, we'll put you up in a hotel uh, you know there's a number of different things we can do but you're not going to have air conditioning tonight and she said yes I am <laughs> she said uh, what did you do with the old unit because it was just working fine and she said well we took it off but we can't put it back on again. And she said, why not? And, and the guy said, because uh, that would defeat the purpose of changing out the unit. She said, yes, but I have air conditioning tonight. <laughs> so apparently Colonel Badger told the men to take off the new air conditioning unit and put on the new one and you know, turn it on so that, you know, until the part came in. And um, this, I, I, I don't know if he was just pulling my leg, um, but that, so that, because I wasn't in the Air Force or the Army or whatever. I've never understood the con control and command structures that exist. But that story really highlights to me what it's like to be in one of these places, right? And so, I, I, oh man, I'm going way long. So anyway, that's the story. Jesus, uh, Jesus meets this man and the man's like, Jesus, I, I want you to heal my servant. And Jesus says, you're going to come see him. He goes, nope, you can do it. Right here, just say the word and he'll be healed. And Jesus says a remarkable thing. It's just like, man, this man has faith. Uh, he says, I've, I haven't seen such incredible faith in anybody. I mean, what faith is he talking about? Well, the faith to believe that this, that, you know, hey, I want Jesus to heal my servant. I know you can do it, so I want you to do it. I mean, he just, he boom, he does it. Um, there, when you get to that level of control of other people, when you have that many people working for you, um, you, you have to do. You have to make a lot of leadership decisions based upon your gut feeling or your knowledge. You have to. You have to really dance around several different things to try to figure out how to lead these men. And uh, and faith is. It takes faith. I guess this is the bottom line. It takes faith 
to lead people. If you're in a position of, of power or authority, um, I don't know how you do that unless you have some level of faith in your life uh, because there are, you, are, you are making decisions that are putting people's lives at risk. You're making decisions that are very difficult. Uh, sometimes you're making decisions. Most of the time you're making decisions on not complete information. And, and sometimes you just have to make the best decision you can for the moment and step out in faith and say, I pray that this is the right decision. <clears throat> and that's hard. That's really hard. And I don't know how people lead if you don't have faith. I really have no idea. And um, if you are a leader, uh, growing in your faith uh, is so important, so important. And as you lead and as you grow in your faith, you see how important faith becomes with leadership anyway. So Jesus healed the centurion. It's a great story. We're going to verse 14. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law. You probably didn't know this. <laughs> he saw Peter's mother-in-law. What does that mean? It means Peter was married. Did you know Peter was married? <clears throat> when Jesus came to Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in a bed with fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she got up and began to wait on him. She got up and began to wait on him. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him and drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. And this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and he bore our diseases. Remember, Matthew wants to show through Old Testament passages that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And so he's constantly quoting the Old Testament. So here he goes and quotes the Old Testament. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. <clears throat> this, is, this is to show the reader that Jesus is the promised Messiah. But I want to go back to this thing. So Jesus goes into Peter's house. Obviously, Peter was married. Um, Peter was a fisherman. He was married. He could have very well had children. I don't know. Um, so you think on Peter being, you know, the first leader of the church upon this rock, I will build my church. And Peter had a wife and could very well have had children. And so he's doing all these things uh, with a wife and children. <clears throat> so today we have, we say, uh, you know, in, in, the, in some church bodies, you know, the large Roman Catholic church, you can't be married uh, and, you can, and you can't have a family at the same time. Well, Peter was able to do it. I mean, I, I think uh, one of the, I know why the Catholic church, Roman Catholic church does not allow marriage because it is hard. There are times when the demands of the church world and the demands of your family uh, are overwhelming. But there are times in your life when the demands of your life and the demands uh, you know, of your work and your family, and if, you, you know, if you're serving in a church, all of that can be overwhelming. I mean, there are just times when demands overwhelm you. And you have to learn how to live with this, and you have to learn how to deal with it. And learning how to deal with it helps you grow in your faith and figure out what's important. Uh, and um, it teaches you how to manage all the different relationships that you have in your life. And it is hard. I mean, if you know anybody, anybody who's a pastor that is married with a family, uh, you need to uh, give them an extra measure of grace. But the same is true if you know anybody who's a leader of a company, if you know anybody who's high up in an organization, uh, if you know anybody that manages church work and family, uh, you know, volunteer church work. I mean, uh, it's, it's just one of these things that you have to, have to learn how to manage in life. It's part of life. Um, but I like this story about, about Peter and his mother-in-law because um, <clears throat> 
what's interesting, I, I love the story because uh, Jesus comes and heals her. And what's the first thing that she does? She goes back and she starts serving again, right? How many people do you know that when they're sick, uh, that they want, you know, that they, when they get out of their sickness, you know, they don't try to milk this sickness for all it's worth. Um, I mean, it points out that sickness is, when you are sick in life, right? Um, obviously you're debilitated, you need to get over that sickness, but when you're done with the sickness, go back into life. Um, if you know people that are uh, older in life uh, and you know, they sit around with, you know, they're retired and, and they're trying to figure out what to do with their life and they're bored and all that sort of thing. Well, serve Jesus for crying out loud. I mean, serve, serve the world around you. I'm so proud of the people in the Vail community. It seems like here, I don't know why, but when people retire here in Vail, they do not, they do not stop doing things. I mean, they stop serving their community and their church and the world around them amazingly. Um, I'm always disappointed by people who just sit around doing nothing. I mean, they could, like Peter's mother, you know, they, she could have, she could have just stayed, no, I was sick. I'm not going to do anything. But no, she served. Um, you know, that time of retirement uh, is a great opportunity to find new ways to serve the kingdom. And the greatest blessing you have in a congregation, like I do in mine, is a lot of people who are retired who serve a, a lot. And I'm so blessed and thankful for all of you that do that because you are a huge blessing to me and a blessing to the kingdom. Um, so anyway, uh, yeah, okay, we're gonna, we, got, uh, we got a few more things to say. All right, so now we're going to go on to verse 18. <clears throat> When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you will go. And Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus told him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. So Jesus is saying here, I mean, this, these, these things that Matthew's put in here, he's kind of put them together, is that uh, following Jesus has a cost. Uh, if you were going to be a disciple of Jesus like Peter or James or John or Andrew or any of these uh, disciples of Jesus, Jesus is pointing out this is not a walk in the park, all right? Uh, we're not going to have a place to live. The, the Son of Man has, you know, foxes have dens and other people have places to live. You know, humans have houses. But the Son of Man has no place. If you look at Jesus, the life of Jesus, he had very little, right? He had the clothes on his back and the people that followed him and everything else. He relied upon the providence of God and the people around him to take, you know, to take care of him. Uh, and if you were a follower of Jesus, you were taking a huge step of faith in your life. Because th there was no guarantee that you might have a meal that day. There was no guarantee that people would put you up that night. Uh, sometimes they had to sleep in the park. Some, sometimes they had to sleep in very dangerous situations. Sometimes they had to forego food for a while. Um, Jesus took everything as a step of faith. Everything as a step of faith. So if you follow Jesus, you had to be willing to risk that you would not have your next meal. You'd not have a place to stay. Um, and Jesus said... Uh, you have to risk that you're, you have to basically follow me and let the dead bury the dead. Uh, I want you 100%. If you're going to follow me, I need you to just follow me. I need you to be in my court. 
I need you to walk with me where I'm walking. I need you to do with me what I'm doing. I mean, the benefit of that, the huge benefit of that for the people that did follow Jesus is that they got to spend two years with the creator of the universe, learning things about this world, learning teachings, seeing things that nobody had ever seen before. I mean, it was the hugest blessing in their life, but it came at a cost. And that cost was that they had to give up a lot of things to follow Jesus. We don't have to give up a lot of things to follow Jesus. I mean, we can still uh, have a job. We can still have a family. We can still go do things in this world. And we should do those things because it is very, very hard to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ if you're a hermit sitting in your, in your hut in the middle of the forest and you never interact with the world around you. So if you are going to be an apostle, if you're going to follow Jesus and spread the gospel, the good news of Jesus to other people, you have to be in that world. Um, but that doesn't mean that it, there's not still a cost for even modern day followers of Jesus Christ. There is a cost. Uh, it's actually probably more of a cost now than there was when I was a kid. When I was a kid uh, and I was in, you know, in high school and I told people I was a follower of Jesus, I was a Christian, actually I was a baby Christian at that point, um, I, was not, I was not shunned. I, I, you know, people didn't look at me funny. Uh, I would say probably when I was uh, in high school, probably 70 or 80% of the people that I came into contact with in high school probably had gone to church the, the Sunday before. Um, but that has rapidly changed. Uh, in, in Vail today, there's probably maybe 30% of the people that, that went to church. Maybe tomorrow, you know, yesterday was Easter. You know, if, if all the churches were open, maybe 40 or 50% of the people showed up at church. But on an average Sunday, you're probably talking about maybe 30%, three out of 10, right? So if you have somebody that uh, would have gone to school today, and they look around that classroom, maybe three out of 10 of them would have gone to, ch to church the day before on a normal Sunday. Uh, and that means that if you are a follower of Jesus and you proclaim that you're a follower of Jesus to people around you, they kind of look at you funny today. As a matter of fact, I would say that if you're in your teens or 20s and you don't go to church, you are very, you are very um, skeptical of people who follow church because the only vision you get at church are what you see on TV. And what you see on TV are a lot of people who get on TV because they have what I would call extremist views or very controversial views, um, or maybe they're very, very wealthy and part of a large organization. And that's what the vast majority of people see is what Christians are. And, and so they're very, very, very skeptical about what Christianity is, which makes it difficult for us who are faithful followers of Jesus Christ who want to spread his good news to people, um, we walk into any situation and they're skeptical of us from day one if they know we're a Christian because they just that's all the view of Christianity they have. And we have to overcome a lot of stuff to be able to get to a point where we can tell people about the good news of Jesus because they're just coming at it from a skeptical point of view. You know, there was a time when Christianity was well-respected in society where, you know, the pastor, when my mother was growing up, she told the story. Uh, she grew up in Wolf City, Texas, um, very, very small suburb, I think, of Dallas and a population of maybe 35 or something like that. I don't know. She grew up in a one-room schoolhouse. So all eight grades in one schoolhouse. 
and a very, very small community, the two people that were the most respected in that community were the one-room school teacher and the pastor, the Baptist pastor of that, of that one congregation that existed in that community. They were the only ones that were educated, you know, beyond uh, eighth grade. They were the only people uh, that really had an education, you know, to be able to lead that community, and they were the most well-respected people in that community. But today, you know, if you're a pastor, uh, you are not necessarily respected at all. Um, and that, I mean, that's okay. I mean, I don't, I don't need the accolades or respect, but I'm just saying that being a pastor, being a, being a, a follower of Jesus Christ, you have to overcome a lot of stuff. And um, so we as a church uh, need to recognize that a little bit, that um, we are not the dominant force in society that we used to be. And so when we make pronouncements or when we interact with the world around us, we need to be a little bit more humble. Uh, we, need to, we need to be very, very careful when we request money uh, because a lot of people think that church is all about money. Uh, and we need to make it all about um, the mission that Jesus has sent us on. And, you know, there's all this infighting between the churches, you know, saying, well, we're better than you because our theology is better or, you know, our congregation is better or all that sort of stuff. When the world sees that, it really turns them off. You know, Jesus said in John 17, Lord, may your church be one. Uh, and his number one concern about the church moving forward is that they wouldn't get into divisions uh, that they wouldn't um, infight, but they would present a unified front to the world around them to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. And <clears throat> somehow, we've lost a little bit of that. And it breaks my heart because, uh, you know, it's funny. If you look at the theology of, of a lot of the mainstream churches that are, you know, I would say you know, the vast majority of churches today, we agree so much more on so many different things than we disagree. It, it is crazy that we put up so many barriers that we do. It is important to fight for what we believe is the truth and to live the truth, and there's no question about that, but we shouldn't have as many barriers as we do. <clears throat> anyway, I'm getting out of my soapbox. Uh, but but um, Jesus lived a life of austerity. He had nothing, and he said, if you're going to be a follower of me, you have to... You. And Jesus does not require us to give up everything and to live as a hermit in the world um, like he did. We can still have our families, have our jobs, live a life. Um, and I think in some ways that's good, but in some ways it means we can also be complacent. We can just give lip service to being a follower of Jesus. Uh, James says, don't be just a hearer of the word, but a doer of the word. And Jesus proclaimed this also. Uh, and we'll find that. Um, <clears throat> being a follower of Jesus still requires some sacrifice in our life. And if you're not sacrificing, um, and I'm not sure you're living the abundant life that Jesus has for you. Because when you sacrifice and you see how Jesus provides for you in the midst of sacrifice, it helps you grow your faith. Um, so I thought I'd point that out. It's not, a lot of people see the church, right, as a, uh, there are many, many churches out there. They're so comfortable. Um, they're so inward focused that they're more of a country club. Uh, they're more of a cruise ship, right? And there's some churches out there that see their main mission is to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world around them, and they see themselves as a battleship. And they see themselves that church is basically trying to equip them so that they can be the hands and feet of Jesus in the world around them. <clears throat> All right, uh, a couple more stories. Sorry, I'm going light. 
Um, verse 23, then Jesus got into the boat and his disciples followed him and suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat, but Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. And he said, oh, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? And then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves and it was completely calm. And the men were amazed and asked him, what kind of men is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Just a couple things here. Jesus constantly tells his disciples, oh, you of little faith. In the Greek, it's oligo, like oligarchy in a small piso of faith. Oligopiso, oh, you of little faith. And, oh, Amtrak is going by. I just want to let you know that. <laughs> this happened before. I love Amtrak. Um, so Jesus says, oh, you of little faith. And, um, and I think the number one thing that Jesus did with his disciples over the course of three years was help build their faith. Say, there is nothing you have to be afraid of. Nothing in this world, because I got your back. And this is how the world works. And you can put your faith in me. You can put your faith in the words that I say. Uh, and you can put your faith in each other. And that's all the faith that you need. And as that faith grows, that's all you need is really just the words of Jesus and the life of Jesus. Um, and uh, if you continue to grow your faith, uh, the, which I call the root system of your tree, uh, you can withstand the storms of life, no matter what the storm is, um, because Jesus walks beside you, helps you build your faith. And uh, that is a great thing. <clears throat> so, uh, and then Jesus, of course, has, has power over the storm. We'll see later in Matthew another encounter where Jesus... Uh, sees the disciple on the boat. It's one of my favorite stories uh, in the New Testament and what he does with Peter. Uh, and then verse 28, when Jesus arrived at the other side of the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him, and they were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God, they shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Some distance from them, the large herd of pigs, pigs was feeding, so they actually had pigs. They had a herd of pigs. Uh, the Jewish people did not eat pig meat, but uh, where he was in this area was obviously people who were not fully Jewish because they ate pig meat, um, which uh, is one of God's greatest gifts to mankind. I just want to say that. Some distance from the large crowd was a herd of pigs. The demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. And so Jesus said to them, go. So they came out and they went into the pigs and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. And those tending the pigs ran off, went into town and reported all of this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And then the whole town, so the whole town, here's the story, they go out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they thank him. Uh, you know, they go get the pigs out and have a big pig dinner. No, they pleaded with Jesus to leave the region. So Jesus in Matthew 8 is showing this incredible power. He has power over, the, over sickness. He has power over uh, demon possessions. Uh, he has power over the wind and the weather. And he has power over you know, these pigs and the, and the demons, right? So he has power over everything. And it scares the pants out of them. And they're a little bit angry too because Jesus is disrupting their way of life. And so instead of learning about Jesus, trying to figure out who he is and what he can do for their community, uh, he, they just drive him out. And so Jesus, you know, he tells us to the disciples, if they tell you to leave, go ahead and leave. Shake the dust off your feet, go find another place. And so Jesus, he does. Um, so uh, Jesus has power over everything. That's really what this is in Matthew 8. Matthew 8. We see the incredible, incredible power of Jesus. Uh, true God, true man. 
and uh, he is still on the throne. He still has this incredible power and still walks beside you. This coronavirus thing, he's walking beside us in this too. And his power is being manifest. I don't know how, but I know that he's present because wherever two or more are gathered in his name, his presence exists. So there are things that Jesus is doing in this world uh, all across the world that we don't even know about, but uh, he's there and he's present. And we can thank him for that. So uh, let us close in prayer. Uh, dear Jesus, uh, it is incredible to see your power. It's incredible to know that you live and walk with us. And for that, we thank you. Uh, Lord, build our faith. In this time of the coronavirus and being in quarantine, um, show us your amazing love for us, your amazing faith or your amazing power in our life and help us to grow our faith. Um, be with all people who are affected by this. Help the leaders to figure out what the right thing is to do. This we ask in your name, Lord.